and the worrisome trend if there is a worrisome trend is that inflation has been slowing at you know 30 to 40 to 50 basis points per month on a year-over-year basis each month we lose about shave 30 bips off of inflation this month or january we only shaved off about 10 bips so that's that that's not great and ostensibly that is a hot cpi print and that is a sort of cpi print that has led stocks to absolutely crash over the past 12 months What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, first off, congrats. A little birdie told me you have a new addition to the Lango household. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Last Friday, uh, kiddo number two was born, first son. And um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're absolutely blessed. We know how, how fortunate we are to, to be able to, to have children, have two healthy, beautiful children. So um, that's that's what makes all of uh, this effort and work worth it is uh, being able to, to play with them and, and spend time with them. So um, mom's healthy, baby's healthy, um, everybody's resting, everybody's recovering. And I look forward to the next three months of no sleep and then the next uh, 18 years of, of being, uh, hopefully a good parent and, you know, the next lifetime of, of happiness with, with both the kids. So, um, yeah, very, 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 very happy, very, very, very blessed and um, drinking a lot of coffee these days. <laughs> well, again, congrats. Hopefully we don't take too much of your time for the podcast, but if this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcasts. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. All right, Luke. Let's start macro today because it's inflation day. Uh, January CPI numbers came in hot this morning. Consumer prices rose 6.4% year over year with a 0.5% month over month. Both were above expectations. Typically, we've seen hot CPI prints spark stock market sell-offs, yet stocks are rallying nicely today. Question is, why? What is different this time? Right. So yeah, stocks, um, they initially had the big drawdown on the CPI and then they had a big reversal into very positive territory. Then they reversed back in negative, negative territory. And now as, as we're having this conversation, they're trying to fight back to the flat line. NASDAQ's only down about 30 bips. So, um, it's, it's a very, surprisingly strong reaction to a hot CPI print. I mean, you're right. We came in at 6.4, supposed to be 6.2 year over year. Came in at 0.5 month over month, supposed to be 0.4 month over month. Um, and the core numbers also beat expectations year over year, month over month. And the worrisome trend, if there is a worrisome trend, is that inflation has been slowing at, you know, 30 to 40 to 50 basis points per month on a year over year basis. Each month we lose about shave 30 bips off of inflation. This month or January, we only shaved off about 10 bips. So that's, that, that's not great. And ostensibly that is a hot CPI print. And that is a sort of CPI print that has led stocks to absolutely crash over the past 12 months. Whenever we've had a big CPI day like this, we had an awful day in the markets. We're talking down two to 
3% on the S&P, 3% or more on the NASDAQ. Tech growth stocks get hit 4 or 5%. Really, really nasty, ugly days, ugly flushes. We're not getting that today at all. And so I think there are three things to pull from the market action, the market response to the CPI report. One, typically, you know, it's a rule of thumb in investing. When stocks rally on bad news, that typically means the bad news was already discounted into the stocks and the stocks have bottomed and they are now ready to turn around, to reverse, to turn the corner, to head higher. That's what we're seeing today. Stocks are... They were rallying, they're having a mixed reaction, but it's not a super negative reaction to what previously has caused a super negative reaction. So that tells me that stocks discounted this in. Last week, we had this massive January rally in stocks, best January in several years. Then we had the first week of February, which was very choppy, and we pulled back. And so what I think happened is that we discounted a hot CPI report in the first two weeks of February. We got the hot CPI report. Stocks are already priced for it. You don't get much downside action. And now you might actually get upside action because the CPI drama is over. So that's the first big takeaway. I think the price action response is really positive. The second takeaway for me is that if you actually look at the numbers, uh, commodities inflation is is continuing to plunge. That on a year-over-year basis, core commodity inflation, so commodities less um, food and energy, rose only 1.4% in December. You know, that's down or in January. That's down big from December, down big from November. We've seen continued massive commodity disinflation to levels that are actually below historical norms, 1.4%. That's below where we were throughout the 2010. So we are seeing very low commodity inflation. The reason we got a hot print is because services inflation was actually – continued to rise and was very, very strong, up 7.2% year over year. Core services inflation, less energy services. But that's a lagging indicator. Services inflation is a, is a reflection of the labor market and it's a reflection of housing. So once those two things roll over and both those things are lagging indicators, services inflation will roll over too. We're seeing all the layoff announcements. We're seeing those pile up. Services inflation, or at least the labor part of it, will continue to will start to come down meaningfully over the next six months because the labor market is finally starting to weaken in a big in a big way. Now you could say, okay, there's still a bunch of job openings out there, but the reality is is that people are getting fired from Salesforce and fired from Meta and fired from Alphabet. And then where are the job openings? They're at McDonald's. They're at, you know, the local restaurant. They're at uh, lower income jobs. So while there are a ton of job openings in the market, those job openings are lower income than where the job firings are happening happening. So the labor market's not going to crack, but it is downshifting. You're getting a downshift in income. And that was reflected in yesterday's New York Fed's uh, January survey of consumers. The household income expectations plunged in January. And I that the reason is again because you're losing high income jobs and where the job openings are is, is in lower income parts of, of the labor market. So you're getting this downshift in the labor market that's going to cause some softening the labor market, which is going to ease services inflation. Now on the housing side of things, rents are already collapsing. Month over month growth in rents is, is negative. Year over year has been has been falling for a while now, according to Zillow, the observed rent index. That is a leading indicator of 
of a housing inflation, of rent inflation, of, of the cost of living, that we don't know when that's going to turn the corner, but we know that it is going to turn the corner because there is no world in which housing CPI continues to go up, yet the, the rents continue to go down. That divergence cannot last forever. We're getting that divergence right now. Soon enough, it will correct and will correct by housing inflation turning over too. So when you look at why did we get a hotter than expected CPI report this morning, it's not because inflation is making a comeback. It's because the lagging indicators of inflation just haven't turned a corner yet. But well, very likely turn a corner over the next two to three months, and you will get a reacceleration of the disinflation trend. That's the second big takeaway. The third big takeaway is that who the heck cares if we came in at 6.4 versus 6.2? We <laughs> came in at 6.4, below 6.5, from a peak of nine, you know, in the summer. The disin- Month to month, it's going to be noisy. You're going to lose 10 basis points of inflation this month, maybe 30 next month, maybe 50, then maybe 10, then maybe 50. That's how disinflation cycles work. You lose a little, then you lose a lot, then you lose a little, then you lose a lot, then you lose a little. The pace of disinflation is not consistent, but the trend of disinflation is consistent. So yes, the pace slowed considerably in January from December, but the trend didn't change. The trend remained disinflation. And if you look here in February, month to date, oil prices stuck below 80. There is a cap on oil at 80. It got to 80. Biden said, SPR, here we go. Started selling more into the open market. There is a cap on oil right now. So oil is not rising in February like it did in January. Natural gas continues to fall. You're seeing those metal prices, copper, aluminum, they're starting to top off and come back down. So the reinflation that we saw in January is not coming back in February, which means that February CPI is going to have more disinflation than the January CPI. So the pace of disinflation is going to be volatile. It's going to change month to month, but the trend is going to remain the same. And that trend is what is supportive of stock market strength. The pace will determine big jumps, little jumps, big jumps, little jumps, but they're all going to be jumps because it's disinflation. That's the trend. So to me, those are the three big takeaways. When stocks rally on bad news, usually a bottom. Services inflation is the only reason that we got a hot CPI in January and services inflation is about to roll over in a major way because housing is coming down and the labor market is softening. And then three, um, the trend of disinflation remains a trend of disinflation. This is not reinflation. This is just a pace of disinflation slowing and that's to be expected. That's what happens. You put all those together and that's why stocks are performing considerably well on a day when CPI came in hot and previously we had very bad reactions to a report like that. I think this is a great opportunity to buy the dip. To me, this confirms a newable market is underway, or at least it's part of the confirmation that a newable market is underway. Other things that have happened, I mean, you got so... There's, there's this indicator called the volume demand and volume supply, which basically takes the total volume of advancing stocks in the market and compares it to the total volume of declining stocks in the market. Um, and we've had a sharp swing higher in the volume uh, demand, but not volume supply. And now volume demand is above volume supply for the first time in, I believe it's about five or six months. In the past 50 years, that's only happened four times when you volume supply exceeded volume demand for more than four months, then volume demand peaked above volume supply. Whenever that's happened, it was the bottom of a big bear market and the start of a new bull market, and returns were enormous over the next three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, and 24 months. So you have that indicator flashing. I mean, there's all these things that are saying, hey, you know what? Disinflation is a trend. The stock market's going. This is a new bull market. Today's CPI report, 
a little bit hot. Oh well, things are prices are still falling. So or the trend of prices is still trend of price inflation is still falling. So you stick with the bull market. I'm still very very bullish. I think this is an opportunity to buy the dip, and indeed we are going to be taking this opportunity to execute our first big kind of stock shopping spree, if you will, since uh, since November. In October we did a big shopping spree. In November we did a big shopping spree. We've been not buying December, January, so far in February, but this week we're going to start doing our big uh, another big shopping spree for stocks. So. That's where we are right now. Okay, so guess we've heard it here, folks. The new bull market is confirmed. So again, to your point, you're about to go on a buying uh, frenzy. So let's talk about how to play this new bull market. We talked a lot about AI last week, and you told us that big tech was the way to play it, uh, the mm-hmm. bang stocks. So big tech for the win. In the, so is big tech the big winner for this new bull market in 2023, or are there other ways to play this rally that's going on right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I I like big tech a lot. We've talked about this before. AI is the secret weapon that is going to propel big tech to even more dominance than what they have today. I mean, look at what Microsoft is doing um, with ChatGPT, their investment in OpenAI and how they're uh, integrating ChatGPT into all their services. I mean, just yesterday, they announced. So everyone was talking about ChatGPT plus Bing. going to create a, coo- a super cool AI-powered search engine. All right, that's awesome. But you want to know what's more awesome? Yesterday, Microsoft announced they're integrating ChatGPT into Microsoft Office. So Word, PowerPoint, Excel, that's powerful stuff. I mean, imagine, I don't know what the integration is going to look like. They're going to demo it. We're going to find out what it looks like. But how I'm imagining is I'm sitting, I mean, I work in Word a lot. I type a lot. I write a lot. I Word is the number one used application on my computer. I'm in Word, I'm typing away, I'm writing the daily notes, I'm writing a a hyper growth investing issue, I'm I'm doing whatever it is. And I have a question about, okay, um, how can I word this better? Uh, What's a better way to make this more exciting? What's a better way to communicate this idea that I have right here? And I can just pull up a little side AI chat bot and I say, hey, can you look at this and advise this, revise this for me. Help me. How do I make this better? How do I make this sound better? Uh, this is a long run on sentence. Can you chop this up into shorter sentences for me? Like an a, like a grammar coach over there to make it sound better, to make it be better. That would be so useful. It'd be productivity game changing. The amount of times I'm sitting here and I write something and I write, 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 and then I look back and I read it and I'm like, you know what? The idea is there, but that sounds like it sounds like garbage. Like, Luke, what were you writing? This idea, you know, I get it, but it's not communicated well. If I, and I just sit here and I'll be like, yeah, how do I do this? How do I do this? And I'll think about it for an hour, hour and a half. Okay, finally got it. Light bulb moment, boom, 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 boom. Takes an hour and a half. It's an hour and a half of my productivity. Now, hopefully, when ChatGPT is with Word, boom, ask Chat, read it. Uh, doesn't look good. ChatGPT, make this sound better. I want, you know, uh, less run on sentences, shorter sentences, more brevity, more clarity. You know, boom, go do it. Boom, bam, probably two minutes less, and it's done. Took an hour and a half of work, shrunk it into two minutes. That gives me another 88 minutes to do other things. And that's what I'm talking about. AIT, AI is the ultimate productivity game changer. It's going to take what would take me 90 minutes, two minutes, gives me 88 minutes to do other things, analyze more stocks, do more research, spend more time with my my newborn son. You know, whatever it may be, it is a productivity game changer. It unlocks so much time for us. So I'm really excited about what big tech is doing with AI, not just that they have AI, that they have the data, that they have the resources and the engineers to build great AI, great AI. But they have the platforms 
that stand to benefit the most from AI integration. Talk about Microsoft, the whole entire office suite, Excel, Word, PowerPoint with AI, productivity game changers. Look at Google. You know, everyone's laughing at Google because they had the big mess up in their barred AI debut, whatever. It's a single mess up. It's not, it does not define their AI um, uh, prowess or capabilities. They have access to the most robust and highest quality search interest data in the world. That is the number one most important thing in developing machine learning um, algorithms, especially language um, uh, models. So these guys are, I mean, they are prepared to have a fabulous AI system and make Google search a fabulous AI powered search system. So that's going to be a, a total game changer for the world as well. When you look over at Amazon, AI powered shopping, AI powered powered recommendations for things, AI-powered pricing of things on the Amazon side, total game changer. When you look over in Meta, AI power, I mean, they already use AI for, you know, basically sorting your entire Instagram feed or Facebook feed or whatever, but just taking that to the next level, adding in interest graphs, adding in different things like that, that could be a real game changer for how we consume media and making it more enjoyable experience. When you look at big tech, they don't just have the AI power. They have the applications where AI makes the most sense and is going to make a change, make a difference, and is going to be used by people like you and me. That's why big tech is a fabulous bet for AI. That's why Microsoft is a great stock to buy for AI. That's why Alphabet is a great stock to buy for AI. That's why Amazon is a great stock to buy for AI. So Amazon, the thing I like about Amazon is I like their robotics division. They went out and they're trying to acquire iRobot, right? That is after they launched the little, what what was he called? The little robot that monitors your house. He kind of goes around and like, I forget his name. name Maybe Astro, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, everyone laughed at it. Like, what a funny, cute little robot. Nice little thing. But that's part of a big ambition for them. You know, they acquired a robot, they, they launched Astro, they're doing all these things. They have the, the Alexa, they have the home virtual or voice assistants. They're trying to create automated homes. And at the, the, the center of that is AI. So I love what Amazon's doing with that. So yes, to answer your question, in short, big tech stocks are due for a massive comeback in 2023, partly because the macro environment is getting better. Inflation's falling. The Fed's going to pivot to a more dovish policy set. Uh, yields are going to come down and the market's going to go higher. And I think big tech's going to lead that rally. But more so, there's going to be extra firepower in the tank because everyone's going to realize these guys are the future of AI. They are AI. And I think once that realization really kicks in, Investors are going to realize not only is the growth runway for all these companies dramatically extended, they're going to be 10 to 20% growers for the next 10, 15 years, but also investors are going to realize they're going to have massive margin expansion potential over the next 10 to 15 years. One common theme that I, you know, I know a lot of people that work in tech. I have a lot of friends that I graduated school with and went on to work for big tech firms, small tech firms too. The one consistent thing that everybody says, whether they work in the big six, the big tech firms, or whether they work at startup tech, doesn't matter. The one consistent thing is big tech companies have a lot of unused fat. Their employee bases are bloated. They grew, they thought there were trees growing to the growing to infinity. And as a result, they just hired and hired and hired and hired and hired. And they have a lot of people at those companies that aren't really revenue drivers, that aren't value generators, that they're making massive amounts of cash, $200,000, dollars $300,000 a year. And they're not providing that same amount of revenue to the company. There is a lot of unused fat at these firms. You're seeing the layoffs kick in. 
So that's going to trim some of the fat. Then AI is going to trim more of that fat because AI is going to automate a lot of these processes. So I think what investors are going to realize over the next 12 months is you look at a company like Alphabet that's growing at 10, 15% that has 20% operating margins. That's a company that probably in five to seven years will still be growing at 10 to 15%, but will have 30, 35, 40% operating margins. The going standard for a company like Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, Though not Amazon. Amazon's a different margin structure, but those kind of more software-heavy firms, you're talking about 60 to 70% gross margins and maybe 20 to 30% operating margins. I think the standard gets kicked up to a whole new level. I think we go from 20 to 30% being the standard of on operating margins to 30, 40%, maybe 40, 50% being the standard. And a company like Adobe, another big tech firm, they're already basically near 50% operating margins. They're above 40%. I think they can probably get to 50, 60% operating margins. So you're talking about massive margin expansion potential for these companies on top of elongated revenue growth runways. And that creates a basis for superior and significant earnings growth over the next 10 years. That's just not pricing these stocks right now because everyone's worried about inflation. So yes, AI creates a very compelling reason. The emergence of AI creates a very compelling reason to buy big tech stocks on the dip in early 2023 before they go on to continue to dominate the global economy and the stock market for the next five to 10 years. My two cents. If AI wasn't a factor in 2023, would big tech still be the call? right now? Um, it would still be the call, but less so. Because again, I, I, the, the bull thesis on big tech in 2023 specifically, so let's kind of end our view at, at December 23. Yep. The bull thesis from now to December 2023 is, the one, the macro environment is going to change in favor of big tech stocks. Mm -hmm. um, in 2022, all the inputs of the macroeconomic model were negative for tech. Rising inflation, rising rates, rising yields. Um, in 2023, you're probably going to get, we are getting falling inflation. You will probably get either a pause in rates or falling rates, and you, you are already getting falling yields. So the macroeconomic inputs have changed. That's going to change the, the outputs um, for tech stocks. So that's the first reason for 2023. Second reason is the valuation just supremely discounted. A lot of these stocks in late 2022, November 2022, October 2022, fell to five to 10-year low valuations on P multiples, EV EBITDA multiples, EV sales multiples. Meta obviously got there. Netflix got there. Amazon got there. Microsoft got there. Alphabet is still there. Um, Tesla got there. So a lot of these stocks became just supremely cheap relative to their historical standards, their historical operating bases. Um, and that did not make sense if you think that we weren't going into recession, you think these companies could maintain their growth performance in 2023, which I think is, is the case. And then third is margin expansion. A lot of people have been talking about how margins are going to contract for tech companies. The opposite is actually happening. And if you go through, that's why I was really bullish on the uh, Q4 earnings season that just happened. You go through the calls, you listen to the management teams on all these tech firms, big and small, and everybody sounded cautious on revenue. Everybody was like, you know, the macroeconomic, the macroeconomic environment is iffy. It's not great. We're seeing elongated sales cycles. We're seeing more deal scrutiny. Um, we're seeing consumers kind of tighten their belts a little bit. So they guided cautiously for 2023 on revenues. But none of them, none of them said anything bad about margins. In fact, pretty much all of them said, we too are responding to this macro environment by tightening our belts, by reducing our costs, by streamlining our expenses. And so we expect our margins to meaningfully improve this year. And so that is a the theme of 2023. You're seeing all these tech companies, we are going to improve margins this year. 
as go profit margins, so go tech stocks. Because I mean, as much as some people might not want to admit it, the simple reality is the big overall reality is tech is eating the world. So tech companies are going to continue to grow revenues. That's not a problem. The problem is where are their margins going to swing? Margins are volatile. We don't know. 2023, they're going to expand after contracting in 2022 because these companies are streamlining their expenses through mostly through labor cost reductions. So that's the bull thesis in 23. And I think it almost has nothing to do with AI. Mm. The AI component of it is, okay, why do we buy hold these stocks beyond 23? Because I think a lot of these drivers will stay in position in 24, 25, 26 because of AI. AI is going to drive more margin improvement than anybody ever thought possible from 2024 to 2030 for these companies. So to answer your question, yes, without AI, big tech stocks still look great for 2023. With AI, big tech stocks look great from 2023 to 2030. Mm. Gotcha. So AI is kind of like the icing on the cake. <laughs> um, it's No, it's, it, it's the... It's the ammunition that drives the stock after the 2023 firepower is up. Gotcha. Okay. So the 2023 firepower is falling inflation, uh, Fed pause, yields come down, margins expand because of labor expense reduction, and revenue growth stabilizes because the economy avoids a recession. All those drivers will eventually dry up by 2024. Inflation will come back down to 2 to 3%. It's not going to fall anymore. The Fed is no longer going to be, um, you know, they're going to probably hike rates, stop, and maybe cut them a little bit, and then they'll be back into a new cycle. So you're not going to get the, the back half of the cycle benefit anymore. Uh, yields will probably come down to 2 to 3% and stabilize in that range. Uh, labor expense reductions are going to stop once the economy restabilizes and re-expands. So the drivers for tech stocks 2023 will not last in the 2024. They will carry the stocks higher to the end of 23, but they likely won't persist in the 24, 25. So why do you own continue to own big tech 24, 25, 26? And that's where the AI comes in. So that's how I view big tech right now. Buy now, and I, I say uh, hold it for the next several years. Hmm. <clears throat> okay, well... Sticking with AI for a little bit, another AI play that you're bullish on, which is trending this week, is uh, Palantir. Uh, they right. reported strong earnings. The stock popped. It's now up 50% from the lows, but it's still down 80% from the highs. Is it right. time to bet on this rebound? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. I love Palantir stock here. So on a technical basis, the stock had, again, it, it, like you said, it dropped 80% from the highs, but it's been consolidating for a while. It's been sideways in the sideways consolidation holding pattern for several months now. Now it's breaking out of that in a compelling manner. So the technicals, I think, look really good. Fundamentally, the stock, the company is finally figuring out that they need to prioritize profitability over growth at all costs. And so they finally reported their first profitable quarter and they're guiding to their first profitable year this year. So this company is now the critical inflection point from money losing to money making. So I think that's really going to help the stock in 23. And then I think bigger, bigger picture is that this company is using AI in the way that companies will buy AI in 2023. And that is using AI to cut costs. So Palantir itself is a very expensive software package, very expensive software package. But the value proposition therein is that by leveraging the data science platform, you will be able to find inefficiencies in your operations, in your sales, in your marketing, wherever it may be, that you can optimize and therefore reduce long-term operating costs and creating more efficient efficient business model. So Palantir's value prop is, hey, use AI to reduce your cost structure, to structurally reduce your cost structure, not a cyclical reduction in cost because of inflation or labor, but a structural reduction in cost. 
That is a very compelling value prop to companies here in 2023. What we've noticed, again, in the Q4 earnings season is this division in enterprise software providers. There are certain enterprise software providers that use their tools to help companies drive more revenue. Then there are enterprise software providers like Palantir that use their tools to help companies reduce costs and become more efficient and more profitable. That second basket is the basket that has reported great earnings like Palantir and is seeing strong and increasing demand in 2023. So I think Palantir is really set up for a very strong 2023 bounce back. But again, I like the stock in 24, 25, 26 because I think its AI tools will become a ubiquity throughout the um well, throughout, throughout the enterprise. And I think pretty much every enterprise will have a Palantir data science platform or data science seat um, by 2030. And that, that is a, a long-term growth trajectory for this firm that should make the stock worth 50, 60, 70, 80 bucks over time. So I really like Palantir here. I think it's bouncing back out of a, a, a sluggish come, back, come down and it's the beginning of a nine-inning rally that is going to be very, very large and last very, very long. Um, you've also been pounding the table in EV stocks for 2023 uh, because you're, right. you know, you like the price cuts as they stimulate demand. Uh, yeah. With that said, give me three of your favorite EV stocks to buy on the dips in 2023. Okay, so yeah, on the electric vehicle front, I think the thing that I'm getting really excited about is I am seeing firsthand um, in data, whether it's Google search data or um, uh, auto sales data or just talking to friends and getting a pulse on consumers. Uh, I'm seeing that electric vehicle price cuts, specifically the Tesla price cuts, are really energizing demand for EVs. So I think that is something that's really exciting. And that's why I'm getting really bullish. I think 2023 is shaping up to be a record sales year for the electric vehicle industry. At the same time, you're getting a bunch of new models. And the models are, are somewhat affordable, a lot more affordable than they were in 2022, 2021, 2020, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you're getting, you know, Fisker coming in at with the EV tax credit around $30,000, you're seeing, you know, Rivians aren't that expensive, really, if you look at, you know, new electric trucks from, from Ford and GM, or even just new trucks from Ford and GM. Um, Lucid is still very expensive, but they they just introduced their own $7,500 tax credit, uh, which they're paying for, oddly enough, weird thing, buyer credit, not a tax credit, buyer credit. Um, so you're seeing these more affordable models come online. Um, and I think that's really, really good for, for demand because cost to me is the biggest hurdle to EV adoption. So now that cost is becoming less and less of a barrier, I think more and more people will be able to jump over that barrier and jump into the EV, um, EV kind of frenzy. So that's why I like EV stocks. My favorite three, well, if that's the bull thesis, then your top three EV stocks or your favorite EV stocks in 2023 have to be the low cost producers. Right. I mean, that if you think that the biggest reason people are going to buy EV stock or EVs in 2023 is because of their low cost, then the best performing EV stocks in 2023 should be the ones that make the lowest cost electric vehicles. So that's why Fisker is near the top of my list. I really like Fisker in 2023. I think that their ability to come to market with basically a $30,000 electric SUV, high performance electric SUV is game changing. I think demand for that is going to be uh, supreme. I think that backlog is going to grow significantly. It all comes down to their production. And I have faith in management, given that they screwed up before, you know, several years ago to do it right this time around. And so I think that uh, Fisker is definitely one of my favorite EV stocks for, for 2023. I like Rivian. I'm seeing Rivians all around. We've talked about that a lot. Um, I'm seeing Rivians pop up everywhere in San Diego. Not many Lucids, but I'm seeing a lot of Rivians. And so I really like Rivian in 2023. Again, I think their production is, is going very, very well. 
they seem to be understanding that they need to streamline costs a little bit. So they've suspended some outside partnerships and are focused on just getting R1Ts and R1Ss out on the road. Um, and I think that's that's a good strategy shift. Um, so I like that. I like Rivian stock. Um, a third one that I would say is is really good for um, 2023 in terms of the EV world. Um, man, <laughs> you're, I mean, yeah, we're, we're, we're debating between Tesla and Lucid right now. And I would, I would I have to say, say is Tesla going to be in that top three. Yeah. So I, as you know, we got really bullish on Tesla on this podcast about, you know, a few weeks ago when it dropped down to that hundred dollar range and in a sense doubled. So that was, you know, thank God we got bullish down there, but I'm, I'm just less bullish on it here. That was a valuation call an oversold call. It is no longer oversold. It is no longer dramatically undervalued. Uh, so the bull thesis on Tesla for me is weakening now that it's come from hundred to 200. So I don't know if I like that, but I do think demand is going to be re-energized in 2023. Meanwhile, Lucid, the thing I like about Lucid a lot at these levels is Saudi Arabia. That I think that they're having trouble producing cars. I think that demand for these cars is strong but niche because it's so expensive. Um, I think uh, hopes of the Gravity SUV, uh, that's still a long ways out. So I think fundamentally the company is struggling, but I absolutely love the fact that Saudi Arabia – owns a lot of this company and reports are coming out that they might just full on take out the company, take over the company. I don't think that's a far-fetched idea at all. Saudi Arabia clearly wants to hedge its oil supremacy with some big EV bets. They've chosen Lucid as their horse in the EV race. Uh, Lucid stock came public at 20 bucks, 25 on the SPAC. This is a stock that went to 40, 50. Now it's below 10 or right around 10. If I'm if I'm the Saudis, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Down here at ten, let's let's make a buyout offer. Let's increase our stake. Let's give them more money. Let's do something to take advantage of the discount because we've already poured so much money into these guys. We have such huge order commitments. They're building factories over here. Um, you know, we have we want them to succeed. We need them to succeed. So I think the fact that the Saudis are there gives me a lot of confidence that Lucid stock is not going lower here. It is only going to go higher. How much higher is the question? Is it going to go to 15, 20, 25, 30, 35? And that all depends on a lot of different factors. But I like Lucid stock here because I think the Saudis provide a very big floor for the stock and a potentially a huge ceiling because with that support, this company could get really big really fast. So Lucid, Rivian, Fisker, I would say that's the my triumvirate, my electric vehicle triumvirate for 2023. Uh so question about Lucid, with Lucid kind of being the, the niche brand, as you described, uh, if in this if, uh, hypothetical event where the Saudis do take over to, uh, to at the levels that it's at right now, does this equal a potential rebrand into something that is more accessible to people or do they stick no. with what Lucid no, is? No, 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 no. Lucid will forever be the top of the top. Mm -hmm. they're, the, they're the Maserati of uh, electric vehicles and they're going to forever remain that. Um, the, if the Saudis do take it over, I think a takeout could happen at 20, 25 bucks a share. Probably. Um, if that were to happen, then I just think they would pump a lot more money into it to scale the production of these super high quality EVs. I don't think they're going to all of a sudden compromise, 
the quality of the cars or the brand equity that Lucid has developed um, to sell more vehicles. I, I don't think that is the game plan here. The game plan is to make Lucid the Maserati of EVs. And then from there, once that is established, maybe pull a Tesla and start making more affordable EVs. But for now, I think you know, the strategy is create the Maserati of EVs, and that's not going to change whether it's independent or um, under control of, of uh, the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund. I don't think that strategy is going to change. Gotcha. Um, another sector that you're bullish on is uh, energy storage stocks uh, for 2023. Um, right. But your top pick here, Fluence, it's starting mm-hmm. to roll over after a red hot surge. Is this something to be worried about? Yeah, I, I think when you look at Fluence, long term, I love the company. Fundamentally, one of my favorite buy and hold stocks for the next five years. But yeah, I am a bit surprised at the technical weakness in the name. It was in this consolidate, it, it's been on a red hot tear. You know, I think it bottomed at like eight or nine bucks, came all the way up to 25. So it's been red, red, red hot. Uh, but it's kind of formed a triple top recently. And the fact that really strong earnings weren't able to bust it out of this range and take it to 25, 26, 27, that's a bit worrisome to me from a, t- a short-term technical basis. It does look like Fluence is not rolling over, but is definitely due to consolidate here. That it probably consolidates in this 18 to 22 range until another catalyst arrives, maybe the next earnings report, that then shoots it up to the next level, up to the 30s. But I think for right now, yeah, it, it, the rally on Fluence stock is definitely on hold. It's surprising to me because earnings were so strong. I thought that that those, I mean, they significantly hiked revenue growth projections for 2023. This was going to be a 30% revenue grower in 23. Management said, no, we're going to grow at 40%. So that's that's a big jump. I thought that would have taken the stock to 25, given it a pathway to 30 by now. But the fact that it hasn't, you got to respect the market. You got to listen to price does tell me this stock is not topping out, but definitely going into a stage three consolidation pattern, probably consolidates here for a bit, gather strength before it's next leg higher. That's probably not going to happen right now. So that's how I'm looking at fluence. Um, But broadly, energy storage space does look positioned for massive growth in 23. Enphase said as much, Solar Edge said as much, Fluence said as much. I think this space is the EIA Energy uh, Information Administration uh, came out and said battery energy storage deployments in the US are going to have a record year here in 2023. In fact, the total volume of battery energy storage deployments in 2023 is going to surpass the total volume of deployments in every single year over the past 10 years. So take the last 10 years worth of battery energy storage deployments, put it all together, and it's still going to be less than the amount of battery energy storage deployments that we have here in 23. So it's going to be a massive year for for the for this industry. Fluent stock appears to have already discounted in a lot of that massive growth, but I think it does take a next leg higher. We just got to wait for that next catalyst. It's not happening right now. Okay. Uh, moving on from your favorite sectors, let's dive into some trending sectors and get your thoughts. Uh, first, uh, BNPL or buy now, pay later. Uh, a cool new payment method that uh, gained a bunch of traction during the pandemic, but which yep. has f- kind of fizzled out since. Industry leader affirmed just reported awful, awful earnings and announced huge layoffs. So is this the end of buy now, pay later? Uh, no, it's not the end of BNPL. Um, I think BNPL is a very bright future. And the reason that a firm and the BNPL industry broadly is struggling right now is because it's a brand new financing option at a time when the economy is getting uncertain and consumers are like, eh, 
getting not so confident about things. If you're not so confident about things and you think that, okay, everyone's talking about a recession, maybe we're going to go into a recession, maybe my job's not that safe, I'm hearing about all these layoffs, are you going to really start buying a bunch of things on financing? Are you really going to start BNPLing everything? No. No, I mean, you're going to use your credit card, your debit card, and cash. It's what you're going to do. So we've actually seen credit card and debit card and cash payments all increase over the past few months, while BNPL volume has decreased. So consumer spending is rising, but BNPL share of the pie is falling, and I think that is a relatively falling. And I think that's because, again, you don't do financing options. BNPL is like you finance a Peloton, you finance a fridge, you finance things like that. Like you don't do that if you're really uncertain about your own income prospects over the next 12 to 24 months because everyone's talking about a recession. So BNPL is going through growing pains. Unfortunately, the industry didn't get large enough until we hit a recession. It was a really young industry, hit a recession. So now it's going through growing pains at a very early stage, which make a lot of people think, hey, this is the end of BNPL, just a fad, not going to be a thing. No, it's just unfortunate timing. BNPL will be a thing. This is a growing pain. It's going to be a tough growing pain. It's going to take a while to get through. But I believe the companies like Affirm and Klarna that are in this space are going to make it to the other side and they're going to grow 2024 plus. They're going to grow significantly as BNPL becomes a more common financing option for consumers, a more common purchasing option for consumers because it just makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's credit card payments. It's credit cards without interest payments, more or less. That makes a lot of sense. If I'm a consumer, BNPL, I, I don't use BNPL, but I know a lot of people that do. It makes a lot of sense for the people that use it. So I think that it will become a very popular payment method. This is just a step back, completely expected step back that will end once these recession worries end. And on the other side of these recession worries, BNPL will grow at a very healthy rate, 30, 40% plus probably for the next three to five years. And I think in that era, you're going to want to buy a firm stock. You're going to want to buy, if Klarna goes public, you're going to want to buy Klarna stock. You're going to want to buy Block stock, Square, because they acquired Afterpay and are integrating Afterpay into all of their merchants. That's what I'm really excited about because Square already has the merchant network. You know, Affirm and Klarna, they got to go out and they got to work these these deals. They got to go and find merchants that want to finance with Affirm, want to finance with Klarna, et cetera, et cetera, right? But Square or Block, I'm just going to say Square. I don't, you know, Facebook became Meta, Square became Block. I'm a little bit old school. I, I like the way they were originally named. So anyway, Square already <laughs> has that merchant network set up. They own the small to medium-sized uh, business merchant network. So all they have to do is just integrate Afterpay into that. The network's already built. So I'm really excited about what Square can do with Afterpay. So I think those stocks become great buys soon, but not yet. We need the recession worries to clear. We need the consumer to stop thinking about a recession. We need the consumer to stop saying my household income growth expectations are plunging right now. We need the consumer to stop reading about all these layoffs and then those stocks can come back to life. And I think when they come back to life, you're going to see some massive rallies because they're really undervalued right now, but not just yet. I'm waiting for the go sign there, the go signal. I'm not seeing it. Maybe it comes in the summer, maybe in the back half of the year, maybe not till 2024. I can afford to be patient, but I am keeping my eyes over there because I think that once they do start to turn a corner, it's going to be off to the races in a big way for a firm, for Square, for Klarna if they go public. I think there's a lot of potential just that's, that's waiting to be energized. And we need the recession worries to pass until it can get energized. So that's where I'm at with BNPL, bullish long-term 
cautious slash bearish short term. Okay. Uh, switching gears a little bit, I want to. Oh, on, on talking- twenty-five basis points. Cool. <laughs> um. Switching gears, I, I want to talk, oddly enough, about all these UFOs. Uh, there was the Chinese spy balloon shot out of the sky last week, and then yeah. three more UFOs shot out of the sky after that. Weird stuff. Wondering how it kind of correlates to what we're talking about, but you've told your subscribers that this is actually a reason to buy defense stocks. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, what's going on in the world, right? I mean, it's like... <laughs> It's just crazy. I mean, the, the the Chinese spy balloon, that's one thing. It's like, okay, we know it is a balloon. We know that it is from China. We know that it is spying on us. We shot it down. There are a lot of knowns there. The other ones, there's so many unknowns. The one in Alaska, the one over Lake Huron, the, the one in Canada, they're not even saying what they are. They're literally calling them unidentified flying objects, small, cylindrical. Some reports are saying they're they're in the air without propulsion, that you can't see the propulsion system, which is like doesn't obey the laws of physics. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. The alien theories are being spouted everywhere. Bill Ackman, actually, you know, the Pershing uh, Square guy, he came out and said he tweeted – what if we recover these objects and find that they have metals that are not of Earth? You know, what happens then? What do we do next? So even, you know, some very important, well-respected, smart people that aren't conspiracy theorists are now throwing out the alien stuff. And I guess it's fun to think about and maybe scary to think about. But uh, I don't think any of that's going on. It's probably Russia or China doing some some weird stuff. And um, we're responding and that's kind of what's going on. So I, I don't think that there's any aliens out there. But regardless if it's aliens, regardless if it's uh, China or Russia, regardless if this starts a war, it's not going to start a war. I think, yeah, it does. You know, look at the investment implications of this. It does create a basis to get bullish on defense stocks. I'm the U.S. government. All of a sudden, I'm seeing all these things flying overhead that I don't know what they are. I'm shooting them down. Maybe I should upgrade my aerospace defense system so that those things don't fly into my territory or that I have more resources to shoot them down when they do arrive, shoot them dead on arrival. I'm the U.S. government. I'm in I'm investing more. Europe's not, you know, Britain, Germany, uh, Italy. They're not over there just like, oh, cool. They have weird UFOs over there. No, they're like, oh, I don't want that to be us. So they'll probably upgrade their own infrastructure. So yes, I do think that all of this weirdness, this chaos, <laughs> chaos is always a tailwind for defense stocks. So mm-hmm. I think that this chaos that you're seeing on a geopolitical level does create tailwinds for defense stocks, which were big winners in 2022, lost steam in 2023, and are now are regaining steam because of this. And I think that regain momentum will persist. I, I don't see any reason why I mean, these are weird events, Aaron. This is not like we just shot out one thing out of the sky. If it was just a Chinese balloon, spy balloon, whatever, done, move on. The fact that it was that, then another one, then another one, then another one, all in the span of two weeks. And then that China comes out and says, U.S., you've been using spy balloons on us forever. It's like, whoa, 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 wait, we have? Question mark? Like, all of this chaos creates a reason to buy defense stocks. So yes, I do think defense stocks look like a compelling short-term bet, medium-term bet, next three to six months uh, in the market because of all these weird things we're seeing happening in space right now or in our airspace. <laughs> okay. Uh, Want to wrap things up with uh, Super Bowl Sunday. 
What a game and what a day for sports betting. A record 100 million bets were placed on Super Bowl Sunday, up more than 20% from last year. Uh, Again, we've talked about this before around this time last year, but is now the time to buy sports betting stocks? No. Uh, And the reason not is because I don't like the sports betting business models right now. I like sports betting, I think, is a craze that is going to take over America. The legal dominoes are falling. The pent up demand is there. I mean, sports betting exists in the overlap of sports and making money. There are a lot of sports fans and there are a lot of people who like money. In fact, I would say in the overlap of people who like sports and people who like to make money, that is a massive overlap. That is more than 50% of the American population. So that is more than 50% of the American population that is at least interested in betting on sports. You integrate social aspects into that. And then all of a sudden, those people that were like, I don't really want to bet on sports. It's not my thing. Oh, wait, you're doing it. You're doing it. You're doing it. Oh, we're going to create a group chat around this. All right, I'll do it for fun. Whatever. I'll throw five bucks and 10 bucks in it per week, per weekend, whatever it may be. So, yes, I think that there is massive demand for and revenue potential in the sports betting industry. My problem is that I don't know what horse is going to win. Who's going to dominate this industry? Do we need FanDuel and DraftKings and all these other sports betting sites? Or do we just need one? I think we just need one. I think the industry gets consolidated. In consolidation, there are massive winners and massive losers. The problem is in consolidation, if you have 100 companies in an industry, two become the massive winners, 98 become the massive losers. And I do not have visibility into which two of the 100 are going to be the massive winners in the um sports betting industry. It looks like DraftKings and FanDuel, but what competitive advantages do they really have? Right now, the biggest competitive advantage is really just the fact that they're spending a ton of money to acquire users via marketing. Mm. Uh, Expensive marketing or big marketing spend, big marketing blitzes, those aren't durable competitive advantages because cash runs out. Are those users really sticking? The numbers of DraftKings don't really tell me they are. They have a partnership with ESPN. Let's see how that plays out. You could develop a mode around that. But right now, I don't see viable pathways for a company like DraftKings or FanDuel to generate consistently profitable growth over the next five to 10 years, even in a massively growing industry. And because of that, I have not jumped into the sports betting industry yet from an investment perspective. I'm not buying sports betting stocks. I want a winning horse to clearly emerge. I want competitive advantages to be built. I want moats to be constructed. I want there to be a visible pathway, not just to 20% plus revenue growth over the next five to 10 years, but 20 to 30% operating margins as well. I don't see that yet. I see 20 to 30% growth across the board. DraftKings is going to grow at 20% plus per year for the next five years. I'm pretty sure of that. But I have very little confidence they can get to 20% operating margins or even 10% operating margins. I don't know if that's in the cards. Until that becomes visible to me, I don't see any reason to get into the sports betting industry, especially considering everything's an opportunity cost in the market, right? If you put money in a sports betting stock, that's money that's not going into an electric vehicle stock, money that's not going into an AI stock, money that's not going into an energy storage stock. So when I look at my investment kind of landscape right now, I see a bunch of stocks that do have 20% revenue growth potential, very big visibility to that, and very big visibility to 20 to 30% operating margins in the next two to three years. I'm buying those 
There's no need to buy DraftKings stock in this environment right now. Wait for that industry to consolidate a bit more, stabilize a bit more, and for profit margins to become more visible. Then once that happens, then you go in DraftKings, then you ride it higher. But for right now, despite record sports betting volume on Super Bowl Sunday, despite a lot of growth in this industry, despite the legal dominoes falling, and despite huge pent-up demand and huge potential in the next five to ten years, I don't see any reason to get really bullish on sports betting stocks at this moment. All right. Uh, well, that covers all our topics. Uh, we do have some fan questions starting off, off with Fitan Kurdi. Thank you for, for all your honest opinions on Airwinds. I will definitely be avoiding them. Should I also avoid Joby Aviation? Oh, um, no. No, don't avoid Joby Aviation. I like Joby a lot. So actually, I was going to um, uh, bring up Joby today because they got uh, – they're moving very rapidly towards uh, commercial readiness and commercial operations launch in 2025. They're, they're moving along with their FAA certificates. They're building the Joby aircrafts right now, the eVTOLs. Um, they're planning to test them, a fully operational one here in the first half of 2023. Um, so they're making a lot of progress towards um, – bringing that eVTOL to life. Now, the reason I like Joby is because eVTOLs make a lot of sense from a logistics perspective and from a transportation perspective, but mostly from a logistics perspective. So that Airwinds company we talked about last week, that was brought up last week, that's um, that's a toy. That's a very expensive <laughs> toy you take out to the dunes and, and have fun with. Um, and a very expensive one at that. So, you know, maybe 10 people in the world are doing that. Um when you talk about eVTOLs, you're talking about a utility, something that FedEx, Uber, UPS, and all those companies will likely use for intra-city delivery of goods. Um, and that Uber and Lyft and all those other companies will also use for the inter-delivery of people. That one of the biggest problems in America and also in other parts of the world, especially in Asia, actually, is that streets are very crowded with cars and traffic is a headache and getting from point A to point B takes a very, very, very long time. And getting from point A to point B, if you're doing an Uber ride or a Lyft ride in a city, you know, during rush hour is a very expensive ride as well. So the eVTOLs that people are imagining that Joby's trying to build actually solve that problem. They allow people to get from point A to point B quickly and cost efficiently. That's the breakthrough of eVTOLs. They're not helicopters. They're not expensive to operate. They're not expensive to build. We're able to do this cost effectively. So that's the breakthrough of them. So I think they actually solve a real big problem of, of um, uh, congested intracity travel. So I think that there's a huge value uh, proposition and a huge opportunity and a huge market for eVTOLs in Los Angeles, New York, Beijing, Shanghai, Miami, um, places like that. And indeed, LA is where Joby's going to to launch its first vertiport. So I'm really excited about what Joby's doing. And I think the stock is really discounted. It is a long-term play. This is not a stock you're buying here because you think it's going to go up in 23. They're not even launching their operations till 25. So you got to sit and wait on that one. You got to let it marinate. It, you got to let it grow. Um, you got to let it mature into the company it can be, not the company it is today. But if you have that patience and you have that time horizon, I do think Joby at five bucks can go to Joby at 20, Joby at 25, Joby at 30, Joby at 40, Joby at 50. This could be a transportation technology giant in the future. So I actually really like Joby. Don't like Airwinds, expensive toy. I like Joby, helpful and maybe some would even say necessary utility in the transportation world. So I really like that. And I like Joby more than the other players in the space because Joby 
is making the most progress with the FAA and with their assembly. So they're getting the certificates, they're getting their assembly up and running. They are, based on my research, at least two to three years ahead of all the other competition. So they'll be launching in 25 with viable operations. I don't think anybody else will be. That's why you get excited on Joby and not any of the other ones right here right now. All right. Uh, next question from Rusty Russ. Given your thoughts on how oil price would affect everything if it were to rise to $120, are you hedging your accounts with some oil stocks? I'm still holding some, even though you were insisting that it would drop significantly going into a recession. Since we are hearing that we may avoid it, is it not smart to keep some oil stocks? Yeah. Um, listen, I was exceptionally bearish on oil at 120 and I'm not exceptionally bearish at oil uh, at 80 or 75. But I, I think it's stuck. I don't think oil goes higher. I mean, oil tried to come up above 80 and it did pop above 80 recently. And then Biden came out and said, SPR, drain, 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 drain. Here's more barrels in the market. Here's more supply. And so now we're back down to 78, 77. We've hit our head on 80 like three or four times now with oil. And it's just not breaking above it. Yes, I do believe that if oil goes to 120, it's a everything is screwed situation. I'm not hedging for that because I don't think the odds of that are high enough to hedge for that. An asteroid could also hit the earth at any point in the next year and it'd be a everything is screwed situation. I'm not hedging for that. I don't have a bunker anywhere, although a bunker wouldn't do me any good uh, if an asteroid hit the earth. But anyways, you get the point. Um, also, these UFOs could be aliens. They probably aren't, but they could be. There's a point zero 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 one percent chance they're aliens. I'm not hedging for that. Okay. I'm not hedging for oil to go to 120 because I think it is almost as small as the things I just mentioned. I think the odds of that happening are super, 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 super tiny. That the economy is slowing. We will likely avoid a recession, but that doesn't mean we're going to all of a sudden go into boom times again. This is not 2021 all over again or early 2022 all over again. We are going to go into a more slow growth environment like the 2010s. Oil didn't sniff 120 in the 2010s, and it's not going to sniff 120 going forward. So I don't think I'm going to hedge against that. I don't think there's any – I mean if you want to own, own oil stocks, go ahead and own, own oil stocks. Man, I'm having – own oil stocks. Having trouble with that little tongue twister right there. But the reason that I'm bearish is because if you look at the earnings forecasts, for all the sectors in the S&P 500. The only one that has materially negative earnings growth forecast for 2023, 2024, and 2025 is the energy sector, the oil and gas sector. Because oil and gas prices exploded in 2022, they got red hot earnings, they're still riding that wave. Now oil prices have come down significantly, 120 to 70 to 80 to that range. That's a massive drop. Even if they stay there and don't go higher, they don't go lower or higher, they just stay here, which I think is probably the most likely outcome, then earnings are still going to collapse for these companies. So I'm not going to buy cyclical stocks at peak earnings. That's a recipe for disaster. It's not a hedge. It's a bad bet, in my opinion. So no, I, I don't own oil stocks. I'm not hedging with oil stocks. I do believe oil to 120 is a disaster for everything, and everything gets messed up in that situation. But I think the odds that happening are so low, there's not really a reason for me to hedge right now i am risk on at the moment i am not going to play defense in oil all right uh next question from green monster 17 do you still like open door and canoe uh okay let's break that one and two open door yes we've talked about it before on this plot on this uh, podcast multiple times um i believe open door is 
still the future of the real estate market. It has been under a disastrous ride. It got hit with one of the most, um, no, not one of the most, the most unusual and volatile housing market of all time. Never before have housing prices soared like they did in 2020 and 2021 and then crashed like they have in the past six months. That That's a uh, boom, boom. I mean, that is straight line up, straight line down. It's wacky. It's wonky. It's not normal housing. Open Door was founded in the 2010s on the assumption the housing market would act like it has for 50, 60, 70 years. A world-stopping pandemic came and all of a sudden it threw that assumption out the window. So that is the one bad assumption Open Door made. Fortunately, it's a bad, it's an okay bad assumption to make because it's not going to happen again. We're not going to have another, we are very unlikely, 0.001% chance going to have another world stopping pandemic that causes the same effects that COVID did in 2020, 2021, 2022 with housing going, you know, straight line up, straight line down like it did. So assuming now that all of those effects have washed through the system, which I believe they have, and the housing market now in 2023 starts to stabilize, normalize, and returns to its cadence of growth that it maintained throughout the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, and 2010s, which is very likely, then Open Door is going to work. Its model is going to work. Its pricing algos are going to work, and it's going to buy a lot of homes, sell a lot of homes, and make a lot of money at really good margins. So I do believe the company is poised for success from here going forward and that the stock, it fell to one buck, it's come up to 232.40, so it's already doubled off the lows. Granted, this was a $35 stock once upon a time, so it's way off those highs, but I do believe that Open Door stock can go from went from one to two, two to three, three to four, four to five, and now we begin a steady march higher towards 10, towards 15, towards 20, towards 30. I still believe in the long run. This is a $100 stock. I'm going to stick with that claim. It sounds bold. It sounds crazy, but I really believe in the open door business model. I really believe in the people of the company. I think they are making the future of real estate. I am... I've been doubling down on it. I'm going to continue to say I think Open Door Stock has a lot of long-term potential. It just got hit by the weirdest, most unusual circumstances in the housing market ever that have never happened before, unprecedented circumstances, and are very unlikely to repeat over the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, or even ever. So long as that doesn't happen, so long as you don't get a repeat of 2020, 21, 22 again, I think Open Door will succeed over the next five, 10 years in a more sustainable growth fashion like it did in the 2010s. You have to remember in the 2010s, Open Door was one of the most hyped up private tech startups in the world. Everybody wanted a piece of the action. Now everybody wants, I don't want anything to do with it. That's a bankruptcy. No, neither are true. Neither are true. Okay. It's a company that is slowly and gradually going to redefine real estate. And I believe that starts now. So I do like Open Door stock. Now, moving on to Canoe, Canoe is a tricky stock to evaluate because financially, it looks like it's going under. There is not much cash on the balance sheet. They're burning a lot to get manufacturing up. And so on that perspective, the stock looks like a zombie company. It looks like a dead duck. But Walmart's here. The Army's here. There are a lot of big companies, big institutions, that have, and NASA even, that are interested in canoe that have purchase orders with canoe that have invested in canoe 
those companies aren't going to let Canuga wonder. They see the potential and all those partnerships happen within the last six to 12 months. So these aren't partnerships that happened in 2018. And now Canoe's like, knock, knock, you still there? Can you help us? No, it's like Walmart announces big partnership less than 12 months ago. NASA ordered cars and Canoe started delivering for them less than 12 months ago. The U.S. Army has certified their vehicles less than 12 months ago and used user vehicles less than 12 months ago. So these are companies that have taken fresh interest in Canoe. That interest is what keeps me bullish on Canoe's stock. I don't think Canoe goes under because I don't think Walmart will let it go under. I don't think NASA will let it go under. I don't think the Army will let it go under, mostly Walmart. And I like Canoe long-term because I do think Walmart has made it clear we are going to use Canoe as our delivery trucks. Amazon's got Rivian. Walmart has Canoe. So I think that from that potential alone, I do continue to like Canoe stock. The CEO... Just bought, I think it was $5 million worth of stock in late 22. If you're the CEO of a company that's about to go under, you don't buy $5 million worth of stock. <laughs> you don't. Okay? That vote of confidence told me, okay, he's very confident this is not going under. Something big is in the works. Maybe Walmart's coming through with some, some deal, some financing. Who knows? But he believes in it. He has a history of success in business. I, I'm, I'm siding with that. And I think Canoe, it's very risky. It's not for lunch money. I'm not going to tell anybody who's not willing to lose everything to go into Canoe. Only invest in Canoe if you're willing to lose 100% of your investment at this point in time. But if you are, if you have some money and you're willing to lose 100% of that investment for the chance to make 1,000% or 3,000%, then I think Canoe is an attractive risk on option in the market right now, given its Walmart partnership. So that's where I stand on Canoe. All right. Uh, last question from Ian S. Any views on ARQQ, Luke? Up 50% in the last five days and still rising. Some people say it's profitable. Others argue that the profit was just manipulation of the balance sheet. Uh, update, apparently it was down 10% so far that day. Um, ARQQ, Arcit Quantum. I don't know if I don't know about the profitability situation. I don't know if that's why it jumped. Um, but assuming we're talking about Arctic Quantum, um, which I th I think we are. Um, did that rise fifty percent from the lows? Yes, it did at one point. Um, Arctic Quantum is a very interesting company that's working on quantum encryption technology. So uh, quantum computing, a lot of people know I'm very excited about and very bullish on. Quantum computing essentially represents the next generation of computing, the next evolution of computing. So today's computers are built on the laws of classical mechanics, and that has some limitations relative to the laws of quantum mechanics. Classical mechanics are the laws that you and I abide, how we act, you know, gravity, things like that. Um, quantum mechanics are the laws that subatomic particles uh, abide by. So funny fact is that subatomic particles, they behave much differently than how you and I behave. And in fact, they kind of have these magical properties. Um, they have things like quantum superpositioning, quantum entanglement. Um, and what these things allow essentially is subatomic particles to exist in multiple places at the same time until they're observed, the Schrodinger's cat phenomenon, um, and to work together, even these like mysterious states to work together to accomplish some problems. So we don't have to get into the real you know, science nitty gritty of it, but long story short, if we are able to build computers on the 
on the back of quantum mechanics or on top of quantum mechanics and these magical properties inherent to quantum mechanics, then we will be able to build computers that are infinitely faster, smarter, and safer than today's traditional computers which means we'll be able to accelerate every computational calculation in the world by a wide margin. We will leap forward in terms of calculation time and performance for every computational calculation, which again is important because every single thing we do is a computational calculation. This stream, this podcast is built on computational calculations. How I research stocks is built on computational calculations. How I send emails to folks is built on computational calculations. How, um, Everything in this self-driving works, computational calculations, how AI works, computational calculations, how the metaverse works, computational calculations, how energy storage works, how batteries work, how electric vehicles drive, all of its computational calculations. So if you dramatically accelerate the speed and performance or improve the speed and performance of computational calculations, you dramatically accelerate and improve the speed and performance of everything in the world. That's why quantum computers represent such a huge paradigm shift and huge opportunity. Now, with opportunity comes threats as well, because what quantum computers can do is essentially break every encryption known in the book. So right now we save all of our digital information through um, encryption methods. Quantum computers will break that. They'll be able to break every single uh, encryption of your, your banking information, uh, social security stuff, um, social media logins, whatever it may be. Anything that you feel is safe right now, quantum computers will break. So what we have to do as a society is quantum proof our encryption, quantum proof our cybersecurity. We have to develop uh, encryption methods or cybersecurity methods that are resistant to quantum attack, that are resistant to the quantum threat. That's where ARCID comes in. ARCID is developing quantum proof um, encryption technologies that allow our stuff to be safe in a post-quantum world. Um, does that post-quantum world come in 2025, 2027, 2030, 2035? I don't really know. My best guess would be quantum computers start to become a more widespread thing by 2025, start to become pretty common by 2030 and or everywhere by 2040. So I think this is a evolution that happens over the next 10 to 15 years. But regardless of the time frame, it's going to happen, which means before it happens, we have to quantum proof our encryption systems. Um, and that's where ARCA comes in. They, again, they developed this quantum encryption technology that promises to quantum proof uh, banking information, government information, sensitive information, all that data. So they're developing the next generation of cybersecurity, more or less. I think that's a really fascinating um, growth story. I think the technology appears to be very sound. I have a, uh, a physicist on my team. Um, who's very brilliant and he's analyzed it top down and says, yeah, this stuff checks out. It's it, it it's good. This is scientifically sound. So um, I, I like their technology. I like what they're doing. I think that the team is, is pretty talented. The problem is they I think they were overly ambitious and they put out some targets that were completely inachievable, unachievable. And they had this idea of creating the satellite network, this quantum satellite network where they would actually power this quantum encryption uh, software through satellites. Now they're scratching that because that was too expensive, basically. And they're doing a terrestrial network. So the story's been in change a lot. It's been changing a lot. Does that mean the growth potential is dead? No. It simply means there's more execution risk involved. Hmm. So again, this is not a company or a stock that you, you, you invest with your lunch money. It's not a stock you invest in uh, if you need that money in six months. If you have money that you're willing to lose entirely, 
for the chance to make a thousand percent or two thousand percent over the next several years and you don't need that money in the next two or three years, then Arc at Quantum looks like a pretty compelling long shot bet, a moonshot bet, right? Um, so that that's the story on Arcit. I don't know, you know, recent profitability, recent quarterly results, meaningless to me. Meaningless. Who cares? This is all about the next three, four, five years. What you want to see is you want to see them sign some big partnerships. You want to see them extend their 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 deal network, and you want to see them lay the the groundwork or the foundation for this next gen technology to make an impact once it's ready to make an impact. Kind of like what AST Space Mobile is doing. You know, AST Space Mobile they're in a similar situation where they're developing next generation technology that has yet to be operational. But in the meantime, before they're doing that, they are signing massive contracts with AT&T, with telecom providers in Brazil, Saudi Arabia. You want to see Arcid do that. Once Arcid starts to do that, I think you get a bit more constructive on the stock and bullish in the short term. But for now, it's a long-term moonshot bet. That's how you got to approach it. It's like a venture style investment. All right. Well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors. As always, Luke, any last words before we wrap today? Um, goo goo gaga. That's what the kid's saying, huh? That's for my baby boy. No, he's not saying anything besides. <laughs> but anyways, no, uh, no, no final words here. Um, I, I think we covered a lot of ground today, and I'm, I'm really excited about uh, what the next few months will bring for the stock market. In the next few years, I think you know we all forgot about technological innovation in 2022 because of, of inflation, and that's so silly that all the technology <laughs> that we were excited about in 2020 are still here, and they're moving faster than ever, and they are going to change the world over the next 10 years. Now you have a very unique opportunity to buy the stocks pioneering those technologies at huge discounts, so why in the hell aren't you? That's where I stand. I'm super excited, and I'm really excited for my subscribers as well. Well, I'm definitely excited about continuing these conversations over the next year and beyond. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear any of your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And as always, to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye, all. <laughs>